Good day, everyone, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast, weekly episode number 129. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip down memory lane back in time, 50 years, to bring you all the hockey news from way back then, exactly as it happened, written in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. This week, it's May 1-6, 1972. If you like what we do here uh, every week on the Hockey Podcast Network and every day on Twitter, you can help us out a lot by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years and subscribe to the podcast. Subscribers get early access to every week's free podcast, and we have some special content we've been developing uh, that we're going to have for the uh, subscribers as well. We have... uh, Lots of things that uh, we haven't been able to get out because of the long COVID that's been kind of keeping me, restricting my activities, but we're getting a little stronger every week and we are going to get back to those special episodes very soon and you'll get lots of historical stories you probably won't be able to find anywhere else. So patreon.com slash hockey 50 years and we thank you for your support. So this week, we are full into the 1972 Stanley Cup Final Series between the Bruins and the Rangers. Now, we reported that last week, the Bruins did draw first blood by uh, winning over the the Bruins or the Rangers on Sunday by a, a crazy 6-5 score. Uh, this was a game in which Boston uh, almost unthinkably blew a 5-1 to one lead to the Rangers, but then managed to eke out the win thanks to a late goal from the unheralded Garnet Ace Bailey. This week, we have three games on tap, so let's talk about the games right now, and then we'll get to the other hockey news after that. So going into this week, there is a Stanley Cup scoring playoff race that uh, people watch every year. And this year, uh, going uh, into Game 2 of the Finals, uh, Phil Esposito was the leading scorer with 9 goals and 10 assists for 19 points. Johnny Busick of the Bruins and Bobby Orr next with 17 points each. And then a surprising name up there, Johnny McKenzie with 16 points on 5 goals and 11 assists. And that Bruins domination of the first 5 spots is uh, carried out by Freddie Stanfield who had 7 goals, 7 assists. Others uh, in those top 10, Vic Hadfield of the Rangers, Surprisingly, Phil Roberto of the St. Louis Blues, who ended up with seven goals and six assists, Bobby Russo of the Rangers, Ken Hodge of the Bruins, and Rod Bear of New York. Now, the games this week are going to be Tuesday, Thursday, and Sunday, and a lot of people were thinking after the Rangers came all the way back from being down 5-1 in Game 1 and then ending up losing the game, you just had to wonder if the hockey gods were just not going to allow New York to even win a game against this powerful Boston squad. So as we were going into game two, I came across something this week in Newsday, the uh, newspaper out of New York City, and it's by a fellow named Ed Comerford, who was a sports writer for Newsday. He penned what he called the anthem of the Ranger fans. So indulge me a bit as I as I bring you this. It's uh, basically poetry, but it's hockey poetry, so it can't be bad. I don't know what tune these words would be set to, 
But this is the anthem of the Rangers fans. For 30 dreary years plus one, we Ranger fans had little fun at playoff time. Our team was done. We thought we'd never feast our eyes on hockey's most exalted prize, the Stanley Cup. But now, surprise! This year at last, the goals in view. Montreal fell, Chicago too. Just beat the Bruins and the dreams come true. Although we've often skated futilely at Boston's bad men, mauled us brutally, this time we face them resolutely. It's playoff time, our dander's up for us. No team's too tough to whoop. We've got to win that Stanley Cup. The opener would make you cry, losing 5-1 we fought the tie only to see our rally die. But the cup is won in four of seven. Tomorrow we'll issue a writ of replevin and Ranger fans will be in heaven. 31 years of desolation will be erased in wild elation when we lift the cup in veneration. The cup, the cup, the Stanley Cup. Fill it with bubbly and raise it up. The toast will echo on and on from Long Beach to Saskatchewan when the Rangers win the Stanley Cup. Leading the way is Captain Vic, Hadfield with his magic stick, a man who doesn't miss a trick. Not to mention Rod Gilbert, whose shots are quite beyond compare. When goals are needed, he'll be there. Hail the return of John Rattel, injured so long but getting well in time to give the bad Bruins hell. For power, we got Walt Kachuk. He'll get us goals by hook or crook and put us in the record book. Then there's shifty Bob Russo, who's sure to add to Boston's woe and show New York the way to go. From retirement came Phil Goyette. We're glad to have him bat, you bet. There's lots of hockey in him yet. If trouble starts, there's Irvin, Ted. Beware of making him see red or some poor Bruin may wind up dead. Leapin' Lizards Glorioski, we found a rhyme for Pete Stemkowski, who's rough and tough and big and husky. On defense count on Bradley Park, an all-star who can light the spark. With body checks, he leaves his mark. Don't underestimate Rod Sealing, a quiet man who shows no feeling, but leaves the opposition reeling. In Nielsen Jim, we put our belief, he looks quite like an Indian chief. The man he checks will come to grief. And in the nets, we're doubly sure the situation is secure with Jackman or Villamere. These are the Rangers, good men and true. In every crisis, they've come through for a Stanley Cup. They're overdue. Overdue? Why a generation has never known the great sensation of lifting it in jubilation. Not since Hector was a pup, but now the long, long wait is up. This is our year for the Stanley Cup. The cup, the cup, the Stanley Cup. Fill it with bubbly and raise it up. No Ranger fan will remain sober from Matok Point to Manitoba when the Rangers win that Stanley Cup. Now, before the series, the Rangers proclaimed that the one thing they had to stay away from was penalties because that Boston power play was so potent it could literally kill them. Well, that was very prophetic when it came to Game 2 as the Bruins' man advantage team led them to a 2-1 to win, putting the Rangers down two games to none. And Gerald Eskenazi of the New York Times has the story for us. 
Unable to score up close, flailing at and missing rebounds, the Rangers suffered their second straight defeat by the Boston Bruins 2-1. The power play proved to be the difference in the penalty-filled game. The opportunistic Bruins, who connected on nearly 30% of their manpower advantages during the regular season, got their scores while the Rangers sat in the penalty box. First, John Busick, a deadly gunner close to the goal, gave them a first period lead. And because he was able to do it because of the placement of the penalty box in the Boston Garden. You see, the Bruins bench is adjacent to the Bruins penalty box. Carol Vadney, the Boston defenseman, was in the box and Glenn Sather was in the Rangers section of the sin bin. Then Gary Doak of the Rangers was called for a penalty. When the first penalties were up, Vadney got to the Boston bench much quicker, leaped in, and Busick leaped out. Bobby Orr nursed the puck onto the opposite side of the ice. He spotted Buick sailing down the left side and gave him a pass that the left winger converted. Orr's assist was his 17th setting a record for the Stanley Cup playoffs. He amassed those assists in 11 games. It took Jean Beliveau of Montreal 20 contests to set the previous mark, which was only last year. But Oren Company were contained in the second period. Barely did they look like the skaters who had swept the last five regular season meetings between these two teams, winning by an aggressive aggregate score of 24 to 4 in those contests. Instead, the Rangers had the good shots and muffled the Boston's power play with Walt Kachuk being the main guy he starred during that time. Roger Bear tied the game on a two-on-one break with a line drive on which Eddie Johnson, the Bruins goalie, had completely no chance at all. Meanwhile, Jules Villemier replacing Eddie Jockerman, he was tough in the Rangers' cage, but he was helpless on the winning goal in the final period. The Bruins had a two-man advantage. The New Yorkers uh, in the box were Kachuk, Unfortunate for them, he's their top penalty killer, and Bruce McGregor, who was probably their second best penalty killer. Phil Esposito beat Pete Stemkowski in a faceoff. No Vilomir. Esposito earlier had repeatedly won faceoffs against Kachuk. And Mike Walton took the disc. He shoveled it in front to Kenny Hodge. The only ranger near Hodge was Vilomir, and Hodge pushed the shot home. Then a play that particularly rankled a Rangers coach, Emil Francis, uh, took place with 53 seconds left in the in the third period. Vic Hadfield was caught offside, but for inexplicably, the clock ran for another three seconds. Emil the Cat Francis screamed at referee Art Scove to question the game timekeeper, fellow by the name of Nomi Tony Nana Giacomo of Boston. In Stanley Cup play, according to Clarence Campbell, the league's president, all the minor officials, goal judges, scorers, penalty timekeeper, are from neutral cities, except the man who works the equipment, which of course is the game timekeeper. Well, the timekeeper insisted that the time showing on the scoreboard was correct, and the Rangers lost the three seconds. One key question was apparently answered in this game. The Bruins might not be in as tough physical shape as the Rangers, but they were able to withstand New York's final pressing efforts, thanks very much to a home ice timekeeper, according to Emil Francis. 
Red Burnett of the Toronto Star reported that the Rangers left Boston Garden faster than the firemen heading to a four-alarm blaze after the game. Now, it wasn't that they were downhearted at dropping two straight games to the NHL powerhouse. They were just anxious to get to their plane and head for home. To a man, they felt they had the better of the play and that a questionable penalty to Walter Kachuk had cost them the verdict. Their absolutely certain that they will square the best of seven Stanley Cup final by winning at home on Thursday night and Sunday afternoon. Kachuk, who sat alongside teammate Bruce McGregor while Ken Hodge scored that winning goal, as we previously mentioned, said it was a bad penalty. I didn't pull Esposito down. He was just too damn tired to stand up. Captain Vic Hadfield echoed Kachuk's version of the play. It was a bad penalty at a crucial time when we already had a man off. I don't think you'll see many called like that in similar playoff situations. Usually the referee makes sure it's a very obvious foul before he sends a second man off to make a team two men short. The big men for them was goalie Eddie Johnson. Eddie stole us blind, said Hadfield. He made two tremendous saves on Rattel in the first period, and that basically changed the outcome of the game. Most of the Rangers feel that they do have the stamina and the condition to outlast the Bruins over a seven-game series. Kachuk was the only casualty in this one. He took a four-stitch cut on his chin late in the game. Esposito, who's been complaining about the Rangers clutching and grabbing, said, I didn't fall down from exhaustion. I was pulled down. Sunday, Esposito blew his cool and took three minor penalties after going after people who were crowding and holding him. In this game, he took it and he saved his beefing for the dressing room. And that's what gave the Bruins this most important second win in the series. So the series moved on Thursday evening to Madison Square Garden and Boston goalie Jerry Cheevers actually expressed a bit of apprehension about playing in New York. In fact, Cheevers said, I'm scared of playing in that place. It's the apples they throw. You get an apple thrown from near the top of that building, it can knock you out cold. And then they throw coins. Natural. I remember in our series in 1970, Cheevers said, and apples and oranges occasionally lighters, which they could kill you, you know, if you got hit with them. Now, Cheevers has as good a book on Gardens fans as he has on Rangers shooters. And he says the icebound scorers are as dangerous as any team. You got Hadfield, you got Joe Bear with their big shots, says uh, Cheevers. And Rattel, he's always dangerous no matter where he is. But the guy who has shown me something in this series is Walter Kachuk. Cheever says in his mind, he's just jumped up to number three in the league behind Bobby and Phil as the best all-round player. High praise from Jerry Cheevers. So as it turns out on Thursday evening, the friendly confines of Madison Square Garden proved to be the tonic the Rangers needed as they skated to a fairly convincing 5-2 win over the Bruins. We will let Dan Proudfoot of the Toronto Globe and Mail tell us the story. The people at Madison Square Garden saw their adored Rangers crunch Boston Bruins 5-2 in something somewhere between a hockey game 
and a New York street brawl. Whatever it was, the 17,250 gushed over it, and the Bruins' winning streak of nine consecutive playoff games was abruptly concluded. Boston still leads the Stanley Cup best of seven final 2-1, but the Rangers have another home game before the series returns to Boston Garden. The Bruins sensed they were in hostile territory when the crowd applauded them in their warm-up by heartily waving their fingers in the air. Well, actually, just one finger on either hand. When Ranger goalie Eddie Jackman left his net to board John McKenzie in the first period, they were sure. Referee John Ashley called 18 minor penalties, all of them richly deserved, and the reaction to his calls made the difference. Rangers, as always, led by Walter Kachuk, killed seven full minors and part of another. And they scored three power play goals in the first period. Brad Parks shot two of those, and he played an important part in the other one, by Rod Gilbert for the 3-0 score. Bruins tightened it up early in the second period when Mike Walton and Bobby Orr scored, narrowing that lead to one, but Gilbert returned the game to New York's hands by advancing it to 4-2 to two less than three minutes later. Again, Park assisted on Gilbert's goal for his fourth point of the game. Peter Stemkowski converted Bruce McGregor's pass for the final goal in the last minute of the second period. Appropriately, the garden organist pumped out song uh, after song tonight after each Ranger goal. It was only fitting that he turned a West Side story for much of the sport lacked only nails in the ends of the sticks to resemble the warfare of that Broadway musical. One New York cable television announcer, Tim Ryan, found himself referring to the garden as home turf. There were as many high sticks and shoulder height slashes as there were clean checks. Gene Carr, in a rare appearance for the Rangers, swiped at Eddie Westfall and Garnet Bailey. The Bruins' leading batters were Derek Sanderson at Rod Sealing and Mackenzie at Glenn Sather, who at the best of times can antagonize anyone. In hockey, the Rangers embarrassed the visitors. Kachuk and Bill Fairburn were particularly effective, and the latter earned an ovation by forechecking the puck away from Orr. Fred Stanfield had an undistinguished evening on the power play left point and was replaced several times by Mike Walton, but the Ranger penalty killers had more to do with the failure uh, to score by the, on the Bruin power play than any particular weakness of the Bruins players. Conversely, Sanderson was far under his usual penalty killing form and coach Tom Johnson benched him for most of the game after the three Ranger early goals. Bruins goalie Jerry Cheevers couldn't be blamed for the defeat. His defense was made of cheesecloth at the right side or was used chiefly when either team was shorthanded and his replacement Ted Green, well he's played so little in this series that his timing was very poor. Carl Vadney, the other right defenseman, was not brilliant. 
or is looking forward to a minor knee operation at the end of the series, although no clue lies in most of his skating. He looked just fine. But often he's unable to get set properly for slap shots, and occasionally he flinches a bit when he's wheeling. If he was in top flight condition, he would be drawing a lot more ice time. When he was skating last night, he used his offensive skills far more than in previous games. It didn't help, though. The Rangers kept his teammates so well covered that they just bought basically limited Bobby's repertoire. Bruins coach Tom Johnson said, We had a real bad start. The power play goals put us in a hole. We didn't play our game, and we were completely outplayed in the second period. A few quotes from the game. Emil Francis said this was the game we had to win, and we won it. Francis said that the team talked it over, and everybody knew that they had to do their best in this game. Now, there is a difference, says Francis. We're only one game down, and we have a chance to get even. From the opening faceoff, Kachuk and Fairburn were in control of this game. Francis said they played super games, and he thought that their defense was the best that it's been since the end of the season. Francis went on to say that Park's two goals show that he's an all-star and a great hockey player, and the turning point was the third power play goal. You will remember that we talked about uh, Jerry Cheever's apprehensions of going into the garden. Well, Cheever's after the game said, I got hit on the head with a huge bag of nuts near the end of the game. Uh, Those were peanuts, not the metal kind that are used uh, to attach things mechanically. Jerry said, it didn't hurt. It just startled me. It hurt a lot more to lose. Uh, Cheever said that the two power play goals Brad Park scored, he didn't see either of them. Both were on his glove side, and Cheever said that on Stemkowski's goal, he had to play McGregor coming in from his left, and Stemkowski had a nice reach for the pass. Cheevers basically said the Rangers had it going tonight, especially in that damn first period. And Brad Park uh, said, all we have to do is keep playing the way we did tonight and we'll be fine in this series. Park said they have to just bust their butts and try to go a little bit harder. This was, Brad says, my best playoff game with two goals and two assists. One of the keys was the power play, according to Park, but the real key was the Rangers' penalty killing and the way they were able to tie up Esposito in front of the New York goal. And Eddie Westfall, never shy about standing up uh, for his teammates and himself, he took the blame for this game. Eddie said, I gave them three goals to start out with, and I didn't get them back. And bang, that was it, I'll take the blame. Eddie said, when they get the jump on you like that, meaning the Rangers with three power play goals, it really uh, makes you try harder and you think too much about making your passes better and that's when you get your passes interception. Westfall said the Rangers didn't let us get going and that was the difference in this game. So Sunday would be game four and it would be a darned important contest. Everybody knew that. And the Rangers going into the series suddenly feeling very confident because of their full return to health were suddenly, suddenly, just as suddenly, 
terribly thin on the blue line thanks to a couple of Game 3 injuries that we didn't even know about during the game. Defensemen's Jim Nielsen and Ab DeMarco both got leg injuries. Nielsen's injury is a knee, and he had the thing in ice for the last couple of days. But DeMarco's was a very serious leg laceration when a skate caught the back of his leg. And neither of those two defensemen were going to be available for Game 4 once again at Madison Square Garden. In fact, Ab DeMarco's injury was so serious he would he had surgery they actually had to operate to repair some tendon damage uh he's basically considered out for the rest of the series gary doak was the guy designated to replace nielsen in the regular rotation on the rangers defense demarco was the rangers fifth guy and he only got hurt he was only playing because of nielsen's injury during that game one of the side stories that seemed to be uh getting a lot more play than the players wanted it to was an alleged threat from the Bruins' Derek Sanderson to Brad Park of the Rangers during Game 3. According to many people who said they heard it, Sanderson told Park that the Bruins were going to get him next after DeMarco and Nielsen went down with their injuries. The Bruins, of course, the coach and the players denied the story, and Park declined to pour gasoline on that particular fire by making any controversial comments about it. But that's how the Bruins do business. They will threaten you with their rough play, and they will threaten you with their rough language. So Sunday's game came, a win for the Rangers, and it's a brand new series with two games apiece. A win for the Bruins, and Boston's will have a stranglehold on the Stanley Cup, needing only one more win. Well, Boston took that stranglehold with a 3-2 win, and one of the great Canadian journalists, Jim Coleman, will tell the story for us on that. Bobby Orr was holding a 3-0 lead over the New York Rangers on Sunday afternoon before the cookie denizens of Madison Square Garden Zoo were provided with their first genuine excuse for braying in the manner of demented jackasses. Although the Rangers rallied courageously in the last 23 minutes on goals by Ted Irvin and Rod Sealing to make the final score respectable 3-2, to two, the chilling truth of the matter is that Robert Orr, even when he is skating on one leg, simply is too good to be matched by the combined efforts of the entire New York team. Emil Francis, the coach of the Rangers, quickly and graciously conceded Orr's complete dominance of these Stanley Cup frolics. Francis said when he wasn't killing us by scoring goals or setting up a goal for someone else to score, Orr was in the dressing room getting treatment for that bad knee. Emil said admiringly, there's no doubt that this man who's playing while he's severely uh, hurt he merely proves that he's a truly great player. 
Francis could have offered an acceptable alibi for Sunday's uh, defeat. He could have suggested that the Ranger defensive corps, minus the services of injured Jim Nielsen, wasn't strong enough to resist the sustained pressure which was exerted by the Bruins in the first 37 minutes of the game. Oh, we missed Jimmy, all right, Francis replied to a question. But apart from more, the story of our defeat was our inability to score on our power plays. Francis said he thought the save that Eddie Johnson made, Eddie Johnson made on Vic Hadfield when they had the one-man advantage in the final minute of the second period, that save cooked the Rangers' goose. Francis said if we had scored at that point, we would have gone into the final period with only a one-goal deficit and, of course, some momentum. Emil gave a lopsided grin. He shrugged and he said, well, back to Boston again. I'm running out of inspirational slogans. I guess that our marching song is going to have to be Onward, Christian Soldiers. Coleman writes that obviously with the game starting at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, the Madison Square Garden hockey fanatics hadn't yet assimilated their ugly pills before they came into the building. And the manner in which Bobby Orr controlled the play from the opening faceoff stifled any latent violence in the, bottom, in the bottoms of the uh, New York spectators. Boston's 2-0 lead in that first period on a pair of goals by the mighty Orr was all the more remarkable when you consider the fact the Bruins were assessed 49 minutes of the 76 minutes of penalties which referee Bruce Hood imposed on the two hyper-aggressive teams and that was only in the first 20 minutes of play. It was only when Orr went to the dressing room for repairs at 2.50 of the middle frame after Pete Stemkowski's shot hit him on his already ailing knee that the Rangers managed to keep pace with the Flying Bruins for the first time in the afternoon. However, after Boston trainer Dan Canney had applied ice and a supporting bandage to the knee or returned to the ice at the eight-minute mark. Less than nine minutes after his reappearance, Superboy killed the Rangers by engineering Boston's 3-0 goal while his teammate Mike Walton was in the penalty box. It was one of those shorthanded goals for which the Bruins hold almost exclusive patent rights in the National Hockey League. Or... Traveling at incredible speed, even more incredible because of his, his sore knee, he accepted a pass and made a perfect return pass to Don Marcotte, who whipped the shot past New York goalie Eddie Jackman. Superboy is a stoic, and when reporters sought to question him concerning his gimpy gam, he gave them customary aw shucks, monosyllabic answers. Accordingly, Trainer Canny became the focus of the reportorial interest. Canny described in graphic detail how he had tubbed Orr's knee in ice and then he had applied a dry, tight bandage or went to the dressing room for a second time one minute before the end of the second period. Canny said, in the next 16 or 17 minutes, I gave him more ice treatment, but when he went out for the final period, he wasn't wearing the bandage. Tom Johnson, the Boston coach, acknowledged that after losing the third game of the series on Thursday night, the Bruins had reverted to some regular season tactics for Sunday's contest. Johnson said, we talked it over. 
We won three league games in New York this season, and we won them all because we were aggressive right from the opening faceoff. So we decided to rush right out of the starting gate and dazzle them with speed. And it worked. Hockey fans, the pursuit of the Stanley Cup is on, and DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League, has an unbelievable offer for the most exciting playoffs in sports. New customers can bet $5 on any team to win and get $100 in free bets no matter what, win or lose. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the playoffs? With DraftKings Same Game Parlays, you can do just that. Create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like which team will win, how many goals will be scored, and lots more. It's your shot at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. Best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN. That's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. You bet $5 on any NHL team to win and you get $100 in free bets no matter the outcome of the game. That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League. Now there is a minimum age and eligibility restrictions do apply and you should see our show notes for the details. How did the coach fe- coaches feel about this game? Well, Emil Francis said we put ourselves squarely in the hole and we're going to have to dig out of it. You know, we can't afford to lose another. Francis said that there were lots of good, tough checking, but that the Rangers gave up two early goals and that's what put them in the hole. And uh, Francis said that that uh, giving up the early goals seems to be their bugaboo against Boston given up the early scores. Eddie Johnson, of course, uh, according to Francis, gave the Bruins another great game, and the save that Johnson made on Hadfield late in the second period was his biggest and his best. Bruins coach Tom Johnson, uh, he said, I'd have to say it was our best game of the series. We had great defense and superb play by all our defensemen. Johnson said that Eddie Johnson, the Bruins goalie, gave us superior goalkeeping and they played just a good, aggressive, battling game just the way they planned to play. So that would take us up into next week with the Bruins leading the final series, three games to one, needing only one win to secure their second Stanley Cup in three years. Could the Rangers possibly come all the way back? Well, they've come back in a couple of games, so they they can do it on a, on a nightly basis, but can they do it over the next three games they're going to have to win three state from the Bruins and there aren't many people right now who figure that is even remotely possible but tune in next week and we will have the resolution of this series now there was a lot of other hockey news going on this week and we're going to give all that to you now Uh, the week began with some World Hockey Association signings 
one present and one past University of Minnesota hockey star signed with the Minnesota Fighting Saints, uh, we found out as the week began. They were center Mike Antonovich, a junior, and goalie Jack McCartan, who played for the Minnesota Gophers back in 1956-58. He later starred on the United States 1960 upset Olympic champion. McCartan is now 36, and he played for San Diego in the Western Hockey League, referred to in the Minnesota papers as the Western Association. Well, it was San Diego goals of the Western Hockey League. And Antonovich has one year of eligibility remaining in university. Uh, it turns out he was a little bit behind academically. So professional hockey was probably a good route for Mike to go. But is he smart enough to choose the WHA over the NHL? That remains to be seen. This is another WHA story, and it took a couple of interesting terms this week. Uh Here's a story out of, I believe it's the Miami News, where it said that the Miami Screaming Eagles had been granted an extension of a World Hockey Association deadline that required them to either find suitable playing facilities or return the Screaming Eagles franchise to the league. A spokesman for the team said that the extension of the deadline, uh, which had expired at the beginning of the week, was for about two weeks and was granted by World Hockey Association Executive Vice President Dennis Murphy. Herb Martin, the club's general managing partner, basically the owner, says he's undecided whether to return the team to the league or make an attempt to play home games in uh, Jacksonville or St. Petersburg or maybe somewhere else until his proposed local arena is completed. If he decides to keep the franchise, he's got to post a $100,000 performance bond with the league. So it looked like the Screaming Eagles might be on life support, but they were clinging to life at this point in time. Well, this point in time didn't last very long because the very next day, in fact, the early morning edition of the Toronto Globe and Mail, and then on a bunch of other papers later in the day and later in the week, the news broke that Miami and Calgary were officially out of the World Hockey Association. And of course, as a Maple Leaf fan, the first thing that came to mind for us was, what about Bernie Prant? He signed that contract. Now he's got nowhere to play. Well, this is a special to the Globe and Mail uh, report. doesn't say who wrote this. It's out of Santa Ana, California. The story says that Calgary and Miami had failed to post their $100,000 performance bonds for the WHA franchises, but league president Gary Davidson still predicts the 12 teams would operate in the new league. Davidson said the Miami franchise was canceled because of a zoning regulation involving parking lots for an arena. Out in Calgary, meanwhile, he said that one of the principals is suffering a terminal illness. We hadn't heard that. And he added that another group in Calgary was seeking to resurrect the franchise. The 10 groups that have posted bonds to begin play in October, if you're, if you, uh, are wondering are Los Angeles, Chicago, Edmonton, Houston, Minnesota, New England, New York, Ottawa, Quebec, and of course the city of Winnipeg. The cancellation of the Miami franchise will have no effect on financial arrangements made to Toronto Maple Leafs goalie Bernie Perrant, according to Perrant's mouthpiece lawyer 
Howard Casper of Philadelphia. Perrant was reported to have signed a five-year contract with Miami for $750,000. Bernie, says Casper, will have the money regardless. I believe he will be offered a job with another club, but it was stipulated that he would get the money from Miami, and that's the way it is. If Bernie wants to go to another club, that's up to him. But he gets the money whether he plays or not. It was Miami and Miami only. As far as the contract went, he can collect the money and just sit around and enjoy it. Davidson said, we have 10 teams and we'll have 12. Our problem, according to Davidson, is keeping it below 12. Now, we heard a lot of different stories about this Miami situation. One that I couldn't confirm, but I'd heard uh, on some kind of a, a hockey show on the radio I had listened to way back then, was that Davidson went to Miami and found out that there were only two of four walls that were up on, on this proposed arena and nothing else had been done. And they just knew that it was going to be at least a couple of years before some kind of a major league arena would be available. So that's it. Miami, Calgary out. Uh, two new cities probably coming in. I wonder which two they would be. We get away from the World Hockey Association for a moment to talk about another interesting story that had been developing Everybody was wondering who was coaching the team that would face the Russians, uh, the Canadian team, this fall. Well, every a lot of knowledgeable hockey people were suggesting that former Montreal coach or Mon- coach of the Montreal Canadiens, Toe Blake, was an ideal choice. Well, Toe told everybody he will not coach that team against the Russians. His health would not allow him to take the job at that time, he said in an interview. Toe says, if I was going to come back, it wouldn't be with anybody but Canadians. Now, Toe is going to be 60 in August. He said his nerves have given him problems from uh, for some time. And he says, I'm only starting to come around now. And if I went back at this point, it would jeopardize me my recovery. I could slip, and I'm not going to allow that to happen. Now, it's interesting. Canadian Press is reporting this story, and the writer there is not identified, but he says, because the proposed eight-game encounter with the Russians will conflict with NHL training camps, it's very unlikely that an incumbent NHL coach would get the job, hence the interest in Toe Blake. Joe Kriska, the president of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, said he uh, the job would uh, he would like to interest former Canadian star Jean Beliveau in the job, but Beliveau has indicated he isn't leaning in any direction until the specifications of the post are clarified. So what you got to look at for coaching Canada this fall is somebody not currently coaching in the NHL and are there any real qualified candidates out there who haven't already been snapped up by an NHL team we'll have to see just who they can find to do that job now last week we told you of several sources who reported that veteran NHL defenseman Harry Howell as I've said one of the NHL's good guys Harry had decided to retire to take on the coaching post with the World Hockey Association New York Rangers. Well, I'm not going to mention the guys that uh, very forcefully reported this, 
but it's the last time I trust those guys. It turned out that Harry had patiently listened to the Raiders' offer, but he never did commit to signing with them. The Raiders apparently jumped the gun and leaked the news that Harry had agreed to terms, when really... All Harry was doing, and if you ever met Harry Howell, you know this to be true, he was being polite and did not outright reject the Raiders' pitch. But what Harry did is he took the contract offer back to his NHL employers, the Los Angeles Kings, explained the offer that he had received, but mentioned that he would prefer to play another series. Now, the Raiders did offer Harry a playing coaching job and they didn't have he wouldn't have to worry about not playing Harry didn't want the dual role he re-signed with the Kings for next season and the Raiders had to look for another coach the Raiders didn't wait long they did go out and they did hire their coach and he was a former New York Rangers player Camille the Eel Henry has agreed to coach the New York Raiders in their first WHA season Here's a, a a bit of a rumor spread by the uh, coach of the 1972 United States Olympic hockey team, Murray Williamson, who told several writers that they're forming a hockey league in Europe with Russia having two teams, Sweden two teams, Finland and Czechoslovakia in it for sure. And this could be the start of an international hockey league with American and Canadian teams involved as well. But uh, don't hold your breath on that one either. Some coaching news. The Vancouver Canucks fired coach Hal Laco as expected, and they hired former Flyers and Seals coach Vic Stasiuk. And the main question everyone was asking around the NHL was, why? Laco remains on he remains employed by the by the Canucks. He was kicked upstairs to become vice president of left-handed widgets or something like that. No one really knew exactly what Hal's job would be. And as far as bringing in Vic Stasiuk, it's the way the NHL works. Get used to it. 50 years it hasn't changed. Why would Stasiuk go to Vancouver? Because he was and he always has been best buddies with Bud Poyle. And it was Poyle who was one of the guys that was around when Laco or when uh, Stasiuk was brought on by the Flyers. He did a bad job in Philadelphia. Actually turned out to be a bit of a racist thing with the French players. He goes to California and there was no appreciable... Uh, improvement in that team under Stasiuk's coaching. So why not bring him to a team that's struggling? The lowly Vancouver Canucks. Ask Bud Poyle that question. A little more coaching news from the NHL. The latest Tom Johnson rumor is that he's not going to be back with the Bruins next year win or lose the Stanley Cup final. According to Kevin Walsh of the Boston Globe, the Toronto job, that's the Maple Leafs, is Tom Johnson's job for the asking. And according to uh, another rumor, he could end up coaching Team Canada after he resigns from the Bruins. Now, the Bruins, of course, are denying rumors that their coach is gone, win, lose, or draw, and they have to do that. Milk Schmidt was really peeved that this story got any legs at all. And he said, if you need a rumor, write that I won't be back next year. 
There was some big news out of the Baltimore area this week, and this came out of the blue. We didn't see this coming at all. Abe Paulin is the owner of the National Basketball Association, Baltimore Bullets. And he announced that he was teaming up with a fellow named Arnold Heft, who was his former partner in owning the basketball team. And the two of them are going to build a National Hockey League caliber arena near Washington, D.C. Paulin said he's going to apply for one of the two National Hockey League expansion franchises that are going to be awarded later this month. Now, like we said, this came out of nowhere. Nobody had mentioned the Washington area as even having a remotely chance of going to the NHL. And at this point in time, I figured uh, this has to be a long shot at best. But you have to remember, if there's somebody involved in the Washington team who's buddies with Bill Jennings or somebody like that, then they're a shoe in to get in. Washington and Kansas City? In the NHL, how ugly did that sound? Ah, a little tidbit from Northern Ontario. One of my favorite all-time players was Dick Duff, who starred for the Maple Leafs, the Canadians, the Rangers, the Kings, and the Sabres. He announced that he would be running in the next federal election for the Liberal Party of Canada in the riding of Temiskaming, which I believe took in uh, New Liskard, Cobalt, Haleybury, uh, I think, and Kirkland Lake, which is Dick's hometown. A little bit of Junior A news. The Peterborough Peets won the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A title for the first time in 13 years. The Peets took the best of seven final over the Ottawa 67s, three games to none having two games tied. And in these uh, junior playoffs, it's first team to eight points that wins. The uh, uh, star of the game for Peterborough was Doug Gibson, who scored two goals. He's actually a Peterborough native. He opened the scoring in the second period, banging in captain Ron Lalonde's rebound. Blake Dunlop tied the score uh, five minutes later for Ottawa, but Gibson came back with what proved to be the winning goal with five minutes remaining in the game. Ottawa goalie Bunny LaRock played an outstanding game as Peterborough outshot the 67s 39-26. Peterborough, Ontario Hockey Association Major Junior Way Champions for 1972. Here's an interesting story that came up near the end of the week, and it had to do with the Miami Screaming Eagles again. It came, it has been kind of revealed through uh, Bill Fleischman, who was the uh, uh, hockey reporter for the Philadelphia Daily News. He says that Howard Casper, the lawyer for Bernie Perrant, is now representing the Miami franchise in the World Hockey Association, and he has approached the management of the Spectrum Arena in Philadelphia trying to get playing dates so the Miami team can play in Philadelphia and Bernie Perrant can return to the city of brotherly love where he wanted to be anyway. This didn't have many legs, we thought, as the very next day, Spectrum officials denied any knowledge of any plan to set up a WHA franchise in Philadelphia. Now, the reports have been circulating, but 
according to management of the spectrum, there would be numerous problems. And Spectrum Vice President Hal Freeman said he had not even been contacted by anyone in reference to Miami's playing dates. Lou Scheinfeld, vice president of the Flyers, said he'd never even heard of the report. But that doesn't mean they're trying to move. They're not trying to move the team to Philadelphia. Now, an alternate site that they're talking about in the Philadelphia area would be Cherry Hill Arena, where an Eastern Hockey League team is housed. Atlanta's new NHL team, uh, their general manager, Cliff Fletcher, was hard at work. The team doesn't have a name yet, but they do have a farm team. As the Atlanta club has swung a deal with the New York Rangers to take over the Omaha Knights of the Central Hockey League. And the club down there will be coached by a fellow named Freddie Creighton. Bouncing back to the WHA for some tidbits uh, before we get to the end of the week. Uh, the New England Whalers are trying to land Bernie Perrant. They apparently have been preparing uh, some uh, offers to get him to move to the Whalers and the uh, east coast of the United States. At a hockey banquet in Brantford, Ontario, former Blackhawks coach Rudy Pillis told folks that he is off to Chicago to listen to a coaching officer from the Cougars of the WHA. And the Maple Leafs have lost another player to the New World Hockey Association. 24-year-old defenseman Brad Selwood has signed on with those aforementioned New England Whalers. A three-year contract and terms were not disclosed. And our final uh, story this week comes out of New York during the Stanley Cup playoffs and it's not about the games. It's about the National Hockey League Awards. There was a little bit of controversy this time. The selection of Montreal Canadiens great goalkeeper Ken Dryden as NHL Rookie of the Year is going to stir up controversy for sure, especially in Buffalo and Detroit. Now, not because the Professional Hockey Writers Association selection of Dryden was a poor one. It's actually an excellent choice. Under existing rules, he's one of the greatest rookies of all time. The screams will come because Dryden is even eligible for the Calder Trophy and the accompanying bonus of 1500 bucks after he won the Consmite Trophy as best man in the Stanley Cup playoffs in 1971. Counting his 20 playoff games and six league games last season, Dryden has a large bulge on the rookie crop of 71-72, most of who had not played in the NHL prior to this season. Now, the, the awards rule states that a rookie cannot play in more than 25 league games. Dryden got in because for some strange reason the National Hockey League governors do not regard playoff games as league fixtures are counting towards that 25 game limit. Most of the league brass feels that Dryden will be the last player ever to win the Smythe and Calder trophies in that order and they don't seem to be too worried about the existing bylaw. However, there will be pressure from Buffalo Sabres where their fine left winger Richard Martin was runner-up to Dryden and in Detroit where they regard Marcel Dion as one of the best first-year men in that team's history. Detroit GM Ned Harkness and California GM Gary Young both will take steps to change the format in the voting for the Calder Trophy. 
They want to make playoff games count in the players' reckoning. And they're doing this because they know their teams aren't going to be in the playoffs anytime soon. They are that bad. So they're going to get high draft choices and good rookies that deserve consideration. Now, as far as the other trophies go, Bobby Orr, Boston superstar, won both the Hart Trophy as the league's most valuable player and the James Norris Memorial Trophy as the outstanding defenseman. He is the first player to win three Hart Awards in a row, and he's won the Norris five times in a row. Ranger Jean Rattel, who lost his chance to challenge Phil Esposito for the scoring title when he broke an ankle in March, won the Lady Bing Trophy as a player who combined ability and gentlemanly conduct throughout the degree of the season. Esposito automatically walked off with the Art Ross Trophy as the league scoring champ. The Vesna Trophy was collected by Chicago's Tony Esposito and his backup, Gary Smith. Uh, that's for the lowest goals against average by a team in the NHL. In the voting for the Hart Trophy, by the way, or one, Ken Dryden was second and Brad Park was second in the voting for the Norris Award. So that's this week's show, everybody. And what did we learn this time around? Well, it sure looks like the Bruins are going to take this year's Stanley Cup, but the Rangers hope they have enough left in the tank to make it at least interesting. The World Hockey Association officially dumped Miami and Calgary. And, of course, the first question I had was, where's that Lee Bernie Perrant? Back in Philadelphia, but not with the Flyers? Entirely a possibility now. And we learned about the NHL awards, a bit of controversy this year, so much so that they're maybe even going to change the eligibility rules. We'll see about that. Be sure to turn in next week when we continue our coverage of the 1972 Stanley Cup Final Series. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank him enough for all his hard work. Andy is a true media professional. He can produce a podcast for you if you wish. Contact me. I'll hook you guys up if that's what you're looking to do. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, The Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. If you ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great high-energy show. Beginning in the middle of May, they are going to be touring through the United States. And we're going to get to see a show by them in the Niagara area in July. I believe it's July 8th at Jackson Triggs Winery in their highly popular summer concert series. Other musical pieces and sound effects are done by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. Please don't forget our other sponsor, the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in downtown Port Colborne. Love to meet any of our listeners for a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. It's going to be a great summer here on the shores of Lake Erie. See if you can make a trip to the Niagara region. You can find us every day on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page, 50 Years Ago in Hockey, a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And we are here every week on the Hockey Podcast Network or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Thanks again to everyone who tunes in. The playoffs are coming to an exciting end. We'll have it for you next week. And we're going to hope that you're with us all the way. And on that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice breaks